Grand Shakespeare Festival's Shakespeare Playground presents Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 short stories by Scott Kaiser. At Island Shakespeare Festival, our mission is to provide accessible classical theater realized for a contemporary audience. Tales from the Vomitorium is presented with special permission from Scott Kaiser and is made possible, in part, by support from our sponsors, the Goose Community Grocer, Goosefoot Community Fund, and Whidbey Telecom. Learn more at islandshakespearefest.org. Today, Michael Blackwood reads Rumor Race by Scott Kaiser. Following the story, Michael will share his response. Then, Scott and I will discuss Scott's inspiration for the story, as well as his experience with the play from which the story is derived. We hope you enjoy. Rumor Race by Scott Kaiser Read by Michael Blackwood Let's have a rumor race, exclaimed Ted one afternoon. He was vaping with Shannon, his BFF, in Triangle Park, across the street from Monmouth Community College. That's a great idea, replied Shannon. Just one small question. What the hell's a rumor race? We'll each tell someone a salacious rumor about the other person and see who hears it first from somebody else. Huh? What's the point of that? Shannon demanded. The point is that dishing dirt is like an Olympic sport around here, Ted explained. It'll be fun to see how long it takes for the rumor to come back around to us. Will it take an hour, a day, a week? And then we get to say that we just made it up and make everyone look incredibly foolish. Okay, I'm in, said Shannon. So, what's your rumor? You first challenged Ted. Make something up about yourself that I can share. Shannon's face turned pink as a wicked idea formed in her mind. Okay, my rumor is that Mr. O'Connor went down on me in the VOM during tech rehearsals for Henry IV too. When you played Lady Pussy, said Ted. Oh, that's a good one. That one will spread like a virus. Like an STD, you mean, quipped Shannon. They shared a raucous laugh. So, what's yours? insisted Shannon. Let's see, said Ted, searching his mind for something plausible. My rumor is that Mr. P flunked me last term to get back at me because he was fucking me and he thought that I ratted him out. Oh, that's delicious, said Shannon. Everyone will believe that about you. I know, right? So, how do we start? We each get to tell one person our rumor. Just one, he said pointedly. And the race starts right now. Ted, looking to obtain a quick lead, texted Heather Blackwood to ask about an English assignment, and before ending the exchange, asked if she'd heard about Shannon and Mr. O'Connor having sex in the theater after school. A few hours later, in the women's bathroom just after lunch, Shannon told Jenny Kravitz, 
a junior known for being a huge scandal-monger, the fabricated rumor about Ted and Mr. Pearson having a torrid affair and that Ted had ended it. Two days later, in theater voice class, while the entire class of 16 was on the floor practicing their breathing techniques, Peter Norquist, the dean of Monmouth Community College, poked his head into the classroom. It was an awkward time for the dean to show up, as Harold Pearson had both of his hands placed gently on the lower back of a male student to encourage deep breaths. Now, breathe into my hands, urged Harold. Exhale on an ah sound. Ah, good. Now, an o oh sound. Oh, that's good. Sorry to interrupt, Harold, said the dean sternly. Not a problem, Peter, said Harold, standing up. What can I do for you? May I see you when your class is over? Yes, of course. Harold had been teaching at Monmouth for three years and was under review for continued employment. Harold was gay and had in his first few years of teaching, out of loneliness, hit on and slept with some of his male students. There had been a complaint, and he was admonished severely by the dean. But he'd been given a second chance. With a feeling of dread, Harold went up to Dean Norquist's office after his voice class ended. Have a seat, Harold, instructed Norquist coldly. Yes, sir, Harold acquiesced. Harold, this is difficult for me, said Norquist. But I've been hearing some troubling things from the students about you, and with your review coming up, I have serious doubts about whether I can endorse your continued employment with us. But, sir... I'm sorry, Harold, but I covered your ass the last time, and I can't do it again. I just can't. Harold was given his two-week notice. Did you hear? said Shannon, approaching Ted in Triangle Park the very next day. They're letting Mr. P go. Yes, I heard that, said Ted with a wicked smile. So I guess I win. I guess so, said Shannon. I guess so. And then she suddenly understood the point of the race. That was Rumor Race, read by Michael Blackwood, recording from his home, for now, in Stanton, Virginia. You may remember Michael's delightful performance as Mrs. Jennings in our 2018 production of Sense and Sensibility, or that same year as Emilio in Othello, or Sir Andrew Aguecheek in Twelfth Night. Here are some thoughts Michael had upon reading this story. Hey, Michael Blackwood here. First of all, I have to say it's such a joy to be a part of this project, um, and I thank Olina for reaching out to me. I had the immense privilege of uh, working with Scott last year. He was a visiting professor at Mary Baldwin University, where I'm currently finishing up my MFA in Shakespeare and Performance, 
and he is a phenomenal teacher and just such a beautiful soul. So it's really great to be able to work on this project. Now, my response to the story. To begin, let me get the obvious out of the way. There is someone mentioned in this story named Heather Blackwood, and Blackwood is my last name, though I do not have any relatives named Heather, um, but I just thought that was great because Blackwood is a pretty uncommon last name, although it seems to keep cropping up in literature. There's a Lord Blackwood in Sherlock Holmes. Um, there is uh, the Blackwood name in some Anne Rice novels. And now this. So I just thought that that was fun to see my surname there on the page. I have to also mention another coincidence about my reading this story. It is inspired by Henry IV II or to Henry IV, as we say in the biz. And I'm currently taking a pedagogy class, and my professor assigned to Henry IV to me as my play to focus on throughout the semester. And I even presented a little lecture on a few lines given by Rumor, the character of Rumor in the play. So that was another fun little coincidence. This little story is a great exploration of rumor, and it reminds me of another play, Doubt. It reminds me not only of the general theme of Doubt, but also specifically of the little parable that the pastor tells one day in Sunday service about gossip and the way that it spreads and the damage that it can do to people. I think it's very interesting that this professor, Harold, who is fired by the end of the story, is gay. And interestingly, we don't find out what happens to Mr. O'Connor. Now, the narrator does tell us that Harold actually did sleep with students, whereas the rumor that... Shannon and Mr. O'Connor slept together seems to be just rumor. But we don't find out what happens to Mr. O'Connor. Dean Norquist doesn't show up to Mr. O'Connor's classroom in this story. Mr. O'Connor doesn't show up to Dean Norquist's office in this story. And I wonder if Scott omitted that intentionally. Regardless, I think it's a brilliant omission because it speaks to the way that straight and gay men can be treated differently and the way that their relationships can be seen as more or less salacious or inappropriate. As a gay man who is also a teacher, who enjoys teaching, I will admit that any time I end up in a teaching situation, especially if it is in a conservative town, or especially if I'm working with underage students, I have the fear of rumor and gossip, despite the fact that I would never do anything 
inappropriate. But just knowing that I am a gay man, I think, sets some people on edge and makes some people more likely to think that something untoward will happen. I mean, there are documentaries, public service films from the 50s, you know, that tell us that, you know, keep your boys away from the homosexual, and the homosexual is a predator. You know, all that sort of bullshit. Sorry, I don't know if you have to bleep that out, Ryan. Love you. Um... But all that malarkey, all that nonsense that has absolutely no bearing or has absolutely no validity to it whatsoever. There is no research that indicates that gay men are more likely to be predators. So this story really resonates with me for that reason. Because whether or not Dean Norquist treats the rumors about Harold differently than he does the rumors about Mr. O'Connor, we won't know because the story treats them differently. The story itself treats them differently. And that really stuck out to me. Whitby Telecom. Connecting our community. We exist to make internet phone, security, and entertainment technology simple and worry-free so our customers can live better, happier lives. So, live the life. We'll connect it. Thank you so much for listening to Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 Short Stories by Scott Kaiser. Scott's with us today to talk about Rumor Race, which you just heard read by Michael Blackwood. Hi, Scott. Welcome back. Hi, Alina. Thanks for being here again. Happy to be here. So, Rumor Race, um, of course, Rumor as a character shows up in one of Shakespeare's plays. Um, So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about um, the inspiration for this story and also the embodiment of Rumor as a character. Well, as you know, Rumor is a character in the um, the second part of King Henry IV, uh, has the opening monologue, um, and starts to recount some of the things that happened in the first part of the play. So it's, a, it's sort of a recap. We think of it as a recap. It's unusual in that uh, it's the embodiment of Rumor. Shakespeare doesn't do that very often. He does it in Winter's Tale, of course, when time shows up. This is the only time Rumor shows up in any play. And it's a great character because he says, I've been out there lying and now everyone has the wrong idea. Actually, it's pretty pertinent because when you think about all the misinformation that rolls around now uh, online, a rumor is uh, might now be called misinformation <laughs> if Shakespeare were to write this now. Um, but yes, the, this, uh, this idea of a rumor uh, was the inspiration for this story, which is very much based on the, uh, the second part of uh, King Henry IV. You know, I'm listening um, right now to a book called Sapiens. Have you heard it or heard of it? Um, I don't know it, no. It's a fascinating history of uh, humans. <laughs> um, but I am I was just listening yesterday on my walk to a section about, about rumor and about how um, unique to humans rumor is and how... Um, 
there's kind of a max capacity of 150 people who can be linked by social bonds and by um, like one-on-one relationships. And when you get beyond that, then we as organisms rely on gossip essentially to connect us and to um, sort of work out status and, and social hierarchy, which I just think is so fascinating. And in this play to see that as, to see that as a character and how the character um, describes themselves is just fascinating. I, I, I don't know the book you refer to, but I, I do wonder how social media has changed that concept because the idea of being bonded to 150 people as a as a species has certainly been altered by the fact that you can reach thousands of people with a single post uh, or or millions in, in the case of uh, our current politicians and celebrities. Right. You can reach them, but can you actually care? And even Facebook like limits how many people show up on your newsfeed, you know, mm, yeah, the algorithm. Yes. Yeah. You're not seeing every most recent post from every person, every thousand person that you're friends with. You're only seeing whatever Facebook has selected based on however they do that, um, which I just think is is really fascinating, even in social media there's a a real human capacity for caring. Well, I partially wrote this because, as you know, having been a theater person your whole life, uh, is that gossip and rumor are a huge part of how uh, the theater community functions. Um, and uh, for better or for worse, I think uh, when it's working well, uh, People in the theater can help each other out, support each other, tell each other about opportunities that are coming up. I do think that uh, you know, rumor, or gossip, or or just the 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 shuttling back and forth of news inside the theater can be positive, not always negative. But of course, there is a a toxic uh, element of rumor in the theater as well, in terms of jealousy and meanness and misinformation. Um, and of course, that's what this story is about, how uh, the toxicity of the rumor mill in the theater community and how destructive it can be sometimes. Right. And how much power it holds, especially today, especially now, you know, probably always, but really now. <laughs> I do think uh, maybe this is true of every community, but I do think in the theater that rumors tend to be um, uh, transmitted very quickly and believed rather readily. <laughs> Definitely. I think that's that's very true and and can be used, you know, so intentionally as a weapon. Well, that is what this uh, story is about. It's it's clearly used uh, quite deliberately as a weapon. Um, and uh, just anticipating you, your next question, uh, that is uh, that's where the story comes from is. Uh, um, and I don't want to. I want to be careful not to name names here, but uh, there was a um, an acquaintance of mine who um, uh, recounted this story uh, rather proudly, um, uh, setting off a rumor race in order to uh, to harm somebody. And I remembered it very well because I was appalled. Um, I don't think it was as destructive as it is in my story, but the the point of the rumor race was very much to uh, to hurt. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's even astonishing, you know, now that someone could actually think of this as a, as a tactic or as a game, but, uh, I, I didn't make up the idea of a rumor race. It's something that, uh, that was re recounted to me and that I remembered. 
Well, in the way rumors change, too, like in the game of telephone, you know, which we I played that in preschool <laughs> where you sit around in a circle and someone whispers a, a f- you know, a few words into the person next to them's ear and then they go around in a circle repeating that thing. And then at the end, you see how much it's changed just over the course of, you know, of 10 different mouths speaking it. Absolutely. Uh, it, it, uh, it speaks to the issue of perception. We all have our own perceptions, our own biases, our own very subjective way of hearing news and, and recounting it. And sometimes, you know, malicious intent is not part of it. It's just your own perception is the filter. And if you set up a circle with 25 people and you let them all filter the news, uh, it, it shouldn't be surprising <laughs> that that it comes out sounding very different than it went in. Right. And and how differently, you know, different newspapers will report about the exact same thing and tell very different stories about it. And based on, you know, which one you individually deem more reputable, that's what you'll believe. But like, who really gets to say that? It's a very interesting um, thing to consider, especially right now, given having just had an election after an election that was you know, in 2016, very confusing with, with news. Uh, I, I, I agree. It's bias in reporting is, is an enormous issue for us now um, because when the Wall Street Journal hires reporters and when the New York Times hires reporters, um, they, they hire them, yes, because of their accomplishments um, and their supposed objectivity. But, you know, let's face it, one is a conservative paper, one is a liberal paper, and uh, they hire like-minded journalists so as much as I'd like to say as a reader of the New York Times that that, that is a paper of record and it's not biased, I also know very well that uh, the kinds of things they print and their angle on everything is, of course, very liberally uh, um, uh, you know, angled and this, the same with the Wall Street Journal from a conservative side. Definitely. Um, so the Henry cycle um, – I have, I mean, I'm sure you've worked on this a lot of times. Just in my few years at OSF, um, I saw it twice. So (laughs) I know it's something that gets done regularly. Um, I'm curious what uh, stands out to you about about these plays. Obviously, I mean, they're they're so good. I love I love the Henrys, Henry uh, four parts one and two, and Henry five. Um, What can you tell me about them? Well, again, going back to my history with the festival, um, my first experience with the uh, with the trilogy, the Henry IV one, Henry IV two, Henry V, was in '99. Uh, uh, Libby Apple directed uh, that trilogy, all with uh, Dan Donahue um, as as Henry, and he was just brilliant in the role. Um, and uh, that those three shows held together uh, beautifully uh, because of the, just the strength of his uh, abilities as an actor. Uh, those are actually some of my favorite renderings of of those plays. Um, uh, if um, if uh, you know, if I as I think back, uh, I, I think Dan was was such a strong, strong Henry because he uh, he's a comic actor and he was playing a a very uh, dramatic role. So there was a sense that this Henry had a sense of humor, that this Hal, when he was in the tavern scenes, really was able to banter with Falstaff. And, or in Henry V, when he was uh, um, the scene, the famous scene with Catherine in French that, uh, you know, Dan did that brilliantly because of his comic timing. So uh, I thought uh, uh, Dan Donahue was a, was a, was a great pick. 
Um, then, oh, you know, maybe 10 years later, uh, John Tufts took it on. And he was, I thought, was, again, a very, very strong uh, Hal, did all three of those shows. Um, a very strong Hal um, as well. I think some of those productions were a little more experimental in some cases, but, uh, but I do think that Hal held it together beautifully. Um, and then, the, you know, obviously the next, the most recent one was the trilogy done with Dan Molina playing Hal. Um, and uh, I thought, uh, again, done indoors, uh, with a with with stripped down cast, uh, very very different productions, um, you know. And each of those those I think those productions had virtues. I think the point I'm trying to make is that 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 Henry figure, that Hal, um, is what holds the trilogies together and really makes kind of sets a key signature for what those plays are going to be like. I mean, yes, there are other very very important roles. Your Hotspur is important. Your Lady Percy is important. Um, your your Falstaff is important. All of those things are incredibly important. But if you want to do the full trilogy, you've got to pick. Uh, you've got to pick a a, um, a Henry that can really play the arc. Um, even going further back before my time, uh, um, uh, the Marco Baricelli uh, did all three of them. Um, Marco Baricelli being a very well known West Coast actor who now teaches down at uh, UC San Diego. So. Um, uh, you know, the tradition at the festival has been to pick a very, very strong uh, Henry and let him run the three shows. And uh, that Henry makes or breaks the uh, the productions in most cases. It's been really interesting to me to see, to compare um, the experience of watching and hearing that story on the Elizabethan stage, which uh, was the John Tufts trilogy was was outdoors um and dan molina was indoors in the thomas um and just how different i i mean that is those are plays that i think do play very very well on the elizabethan stage and there's so much um broad broad history and like epicness to be embodied in in those stories that um i think that can work really, really well on that stage. And, and I felt did in many ways, um, in when I saw it with John Tufts and then on the flip side of that to, to experience it in the Thomas theater in, um, a three quarter thrust. I don't think it was in the round. I think it was three quarter. Um, and, um, to experience so much more of the intimacy of the relationship between Hal and his father and, um, the the Hotspur family and all of that was was really really different and um, exciting in its own way. I just it's it's fun to see the difference that the same story can hold in in two very different spaces, as has been our theme in recent conversations. I, I agree. I mean, the one thing about these histories uh, is that they worked in all three venues. I mean, I also worked in a Henry Five in the. Uh, in the Bomer with, with Libby. And that was a, a, a extraordinary uh, production. Um, so, you know, these histories work in, in any venue and that's what makes them so extraordinary. Um, and, uh, it, but the Elizabethan, uh, lends itself to these kinds of histories. Uh, and there was, used to be a very strong audience for, uh, at the festival for coming to see the history and the pageantry of these histories and the language of these histories in the Elizabethan theater. Uh, I, I sometimes worry that that, that, uh, um, the passion for seeing a history outdoors has been slowly kind of eroded, 
Um, but uh, for lack of interest in, in directors, I think uh, for the for the main uh, the main reason. But uh, but they do work brilliantly out there, and uh, there's no reason not to do them in any of those venues. Um, since we're talking about the second part of Henry the the fourth, uh, the one production that I worked on, this was outdoors, was an all male version of it. That was also with Libby Apple. It was an all male version. Um, it's hard to imagine that nowadays, when there's so much complaint about men taking all the roles, that uh, Libby would have committed to a production of um, the second part of King Henry the Fourth with no women in it at all. But that's how it was done, and uh, it, with. Um, moderate success i think it had its problems uh there was you know those scenes tend to be a little draggy if you know what i mean i don't mean drag slow i mean you've got men in drag um but uh um it was an interesting experiment huh that yeah i don't know i don't know if we'll see a lot of that moving forward but i hope that i hope that you know as our culture progresses we can see both you know because I do I think it is it's always really interesting to investigate a story through that specific lens or an all-female bodied lens or a queer lens or you know always it's it just uncovers more of what's there well, I agree. I mean, in 99, the, the idea was, you know, obviously it was much more about original practices. The idea, like, let's do a male production to see how it would have looked on Shakespeare's stage. Uh, I do think that we are in an era now, uh, over 20 years later, where that's uh, unthinkable, given the fact that women are uh, so um, uh, so undervalued in Shakespeare. Um, and the opportunities are so scant that we're trying to redress this. Uh, I, I can't imagine, you know, an all-male uh, production uh, anytime soon. But you can understand in in context why it was interesting to Libby because it was about uh, um, it, it was much more about original practices at the time. Yeah, definitely. Um, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Scott. I really appreciate this conversation. Thank um, you, Lena. We'll talk to you next week. I look forward to it. Great. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Vomitorium, 38 short stories by Scott Kaiser. Our thanks to our sound engineer and composer extraordinaire, Orion Michael Schwann. This episode was sponsored in part by Bob Hodges and Peggy Juvie, as well as the Goose Community Grocer, Goosefoot Community Fund, Whidbey Telecom, and by our listeners. Support us and learn more at islandshakespearefest.org.